Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. Rivka, how do you like that new theme song, Just Dropped, Fresh? Is that a DJ Frank original? Like, did you? No. Oh, God, no. I actually... (laughs) (laughs) That's what you did on our break? Yeah, for two weeks. That took me two weeks of work to come up with that. (laughs) No, it's actually, I was going to try to do a mix of some kind. I have like, you know, I edit this podcast. I have uh, audio editing ability, but like music editing is much more complicated. So I like started doing it and I was like, God damn, this is tough. Uh, I went online and I found this remix on YouTube by a, a, a guy named Just Ben. We'll link to his profile in the episode description. And in the details, it said, feel free to use this for whatever you want. Just make sure you credit me. So you know what? Just Ben, here is your credit. Credited. Credited. So good. It's punky. New era. New era. We're revamping. We've been to Europe, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just like spent so much time listening to European house music. I was like, we have to bring this back to the States. So much house music. So much house music. On the beach, on the street everywhere everywhere it was wild so like i was i went to sicily with my family and my dad's cousin uh lives in sicily and he was basically like our tour guide he took us around the entire island i think he we ended up seeing like 60 percent of the entire island it was beautiful we went to the beaches we went to the mountains we ate pastries (laughs) we ate antipast antipast not antipasti I mean, it really is antipasti, antipasto. Antipasto is like the American bastardization. But there was house music everywhere. Even like, even at all of these like old rustic Italian restaurants, they're playing this <laughs> shitty house music. And I was like, you guys have like centuries of some of the best Italian music, and you're playing this like shitty beat. Like, what? But don't do this. That's my only note for Sicily. There was Less a love. There was a love for it. I was in London, Paris, and Lisboa. That's Lisbon. Um, it was a whirlwind with three of our best friends uh, from college. It was so much fun. I loved my little bites. But I have to say, Frank, your hair, for anyone just listening who's not watching, Frank's hair grew like two. I'm so jealous. It's like two inches. I mean, my hair grows pretty fast. I would, If I could steal a thing, I would steal that from you. I want that superpower i'm very fortunate that i don't uh i don't think i'll be going bald uh thank you mom side of the family Um, all right well that's enough of that (laughs) because some shit went down while we were away and the hardest part was not having you there to talk about it with to be honest i I really had to be like you know what i mean i talked about it but i was like let's just let's try not to get so angry and frustrated about the bullshit going down. So why don't you get into it for anyone who hasn't heard? Sure. So there's a little bit of a strike update with the WGA. So the WGA, the Writers Guild, and the AMPTP, the uh, the studios and the the streamers are back in negotiations. As of a few days ago, they've resumed talks. So people are feeling a little bit hopeful about this. But uh, before that happened, and I'm sure people have already heard about this too, of our finest talk show hosts, Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher, announced that their shows would be coming back without their writers. I'll start with Drew. So on September 10th, Drew announced on social media that the show would be coming back. 
uh, she caught uh, the most backlash that, <laughs> that I think a, a celebrity can catch for scabbing like this. Uh, the memes were outstanding. And then she released, did you watch her apology video? I'm sure you All right. did. Well, like, like, this was the trouble with, I did, but once I got on there, she had already deleted it. So I had to find it through back channels. It was like half a day of my vacation. I needed to see, and it was... She, she found really, the illegal stream of Drew's she apology She desperately video. needed some writers for that apology, let me tell you that. Got her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was completely out of touch. I mean, this is... We're, we're, like, if you haven't seen it, basically, Drew comes on and, you know, is kind of, like, crying crocodile tears, feeling so bad, and... and you know, just, like, doesn't understand why people are so mad, and even deeply said... Deeply apologizing. Deeply apologizing, but without any actual material action of any kind. She said in the video, quote, I know there's just nothing I can do that will make this okay with those that it is not okay with. I fully accept that. I fully understand that. And it's like, yo, lady, people are literally telling you what you can do to make it better. I, I was surprised, but I'm also not surprised because I feel like we've seen this so many times from celebrities. Like, fame is a disease. They just, you, you get to, you become famous for a certain amount of time, you amass a certain amount of wealth, and then you just stop understanding what it is to be a human being who well, interacts the, with other human beings. And the deep beings. narcissism related to that fame that was revealed because I was really trying to understand because I I like Drew Barrymore. Ugh. Yeah. Like, it's Never been annoying. kissed? Come on. Absolutely. So I'm really like, and and she really sells this, you know, I'm your best friend. I've been through shit. Like... I'm here for it. I'm a sucker for it. But so I'm really trying, I was really trying to like uncover what's behind this. And there's really like the narcissism of that level of fame where I really believe that she really believed because I was like, what is the justification here? She really believed that what sh her show brought to the quote unquote people, the joy, the, the sit downs with Olivia Munn or whatever. <laughs> What is was, going on with Olivia was, <laughs> I'm curious. Was more important than like that that loss and Bill Bill Maher who will we'll get yeah to. he's another level we'll of get to. it's another of level but there's yep. really a genuine belief on their end that like it is not fair to take their shows away from the people just because this other group of people can't make a living and might be might starve. Do you think that was her pathology? Was like people? Yeah, people I wish need, I pulled a quote. Like, that the, was the that was yeah. Because I do believe that she really believes that. It doesn't make it okay, but I think that's mm -hmm. part of. It. I think that's what celebrity. You buy into it so much into the, you know, that you are the goal, that you are the mechanism of capitalism couldn't keep going without you, and so the little ones need something to trickle down off of you. And in Drew's case, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is her it's, her couch it's fireside, condos. <laughs> it's yeah, fireside, fireside chats with the Olivia Munn. It's um whatever, yeah. And so I really think, and she said something to that. I think that really is the belief: is like it's not fair. Like I did, I started this. I give so much to the people. My show is so meaningful that to take it away, I weighed it out. Like a, a, you, a whole group of people, workers' rights, and like the value of what I give the world. I'm more important. And I think that really is the belief. 
Well, let's let's move on to Bill Maher because he's in a league separate from Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore <laughs> can be like, you know, she's out of touch. She was a child star. She's a multi generational nepo baby. She doesn't like. How could she know any better? Bill Maher. <laughs> how could she? How could she? Bill Maher is a. If you have any uh, uh, understanding of who Bill Maher has become if in the last, you've ever heard him speak for five seconds. Yeah, he's the guy that is like, you know, millennials is the problem. You guys are the lazy ones, and you're the reason the country is going to shit. Like that's his brand of like liberal centrist reactionary mm-hmm. bullshit that comes from a man who has now just become so out of touch. And in such an elite class that he has no concept of what the fuck is happening with regular people. So just a little bit of context. Bill Maher's net worth is $140 million. So this is a guy sitting on an incredible amount of wealth talking about what the needs of rank and file writers are. Um, So on September 13th, he posted on social media that he would be resuming real time. Um, the justification he gave was beca- was that all of the below-the-line staff, you know, his production people, his camera people, you know, wardrobe, hair, makeup, all, all the people that are not writers are also out of work, and this is really hurting them. And, you know, uh, surface level, without any inv- investigation, you're like, oh, that's true, you know, that that is, that sucks that these people are also not being able to make a living right now. Um, again, so Bill pay Mar- them, Bill. Yeah, again, Bill, you, you have $140 million. Fucking pay your people. Um, also, the point of a strike is to disrupt the economy. It is to inflict pain. Unfortunately, that some of that pain is felt by the workers. The workers themselves are striking and not making any money. It's That's how strikes work. A little bit before that, he had gone on Jim Gaffigan's podcast and, like, really— but this is before he even announced that he was, the show was coming back— really doubled down on his, you know, being a piece of shit, saying, quote— the writers are asking for a lot of things that are like kooky. What, what I find objectionable about the philosophy of the strike is it seems to be they have really morphed a long way from the 2007 strike where they kind of believe that you're owed a living as a writer and you're not. This is show business. This is the make or miss league, which is, <laughs> which is something that you hear from people who have found success and positing that writers don't deserve to make a living coming from a guy who has found this massive amount of sex uh, of success is just so fucking out of touch and infuriating. No, it, it makes me, it makes my blood boil. And I also have a, a horrific confession to make. You're, you're, you're secretly a real time stand. No, you love new rules, <laughs> but I once did, but what did I know? I was in high school. And also I feel like there was like, it was, I knew not I knew not a thing, but I did go to a live taping once. Wow. Thank you for the disclosure. Because I'm I sure just, like full disclosure in case it comes out, there's a yeah. photo of me. <laughs> in case the hit piece <laughs> against Rivka comes out. No, I appreciate that. I mean I've I've like like look, Bill Maher, you know, the 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 religiosity documentary he made a while back, I I've, I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember thinking it was good. He's been outspoken about organized religion, which I think is good. Like not everyone is one hundred percent bad. He's just, you know, a lot of, he's just like he's 95% bad. The last thing I want to touch on with him, and it's just something he got so wrong and just is demonstrative of his lack of understanding of the situation is he said on that podcast interview with Gaffigan, quote, they struck at just the wrong time. They have no leverage, which is a wild, <laughs> just a wild claim to make considering that Warner Brothers Discovery alone could lose up to $500 million this year because of the dual strikes. 
So when he says they have no leverage, he clearly doesn't understand how labor economics work in that the labor is the leverage. The labor creates the additional value and the wealth. That is the leverage. That is the point of a strike. But, you know, after yeah. receiving a lot of backlash on September 18th, he announced that real time will not be coming back. Uh, he said it's because they, the WGA is back in negotiating, so he's hoping that they can wrap it up uh, quickly. But, you know, as absolutely infuriating and annoying both of these instances were, I was, you know, I was heartened to see what, like, public backlash can accomplish. Because if there hadn't been the the outrage over them coming back, they definitely would have just continued business as usual. Our shows are coming back. All right, well, that's all we wanted to hit with the strike stuff. So we should get to our really wonderful conversation that we had with John Shelton about Back to the Future. Uh, but first, you just want to let our listeners know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show you can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Back to the Future with John Shelton. Today we have with us John Shelton. John is a professor and chair of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He is the author of The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy, and also serves as vice president of higher education for the American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin. Welcome, John. It's so great to have you on Movies Versus Capitalism. Uh, thanks so much for having me today, and I'm I'm just thrilled and pumped and any other word you can use to be able to talk about this movie. So this is going to be so fun. Absolutely. Same. So are we. And um, our our listeners will know we have our, our biggest fan and who we're also the biggest fan of, mm -hmm. Harvey K. Um, Harvey K. connected us. And so we're, yeah, we're very excited to have you on. And before we get to talking about the movie, I'm just, we're curious a little bit about you and your work, and it's always impressive when someone has written a big book, which you've done. Do you want to tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah, well, I tried to keep the book short, so it's not its not a, you know, war and peace or anything. It's only a couple hundred pages, and I think pretty accessible. Um, but the book is called The Education Myth, and, you know, what I do is I, I, I chart how Americans think about education over the course of American history. Um, you know, moving from uh, a version of education that is really, uh, especially in the 19th century, more about helping Americans to facilitate common citizenship, right? With a with a lot mm -hmm. of with a lot of with a lot of limitations to that, right? I mean, African American kids were excluded from the public education system for the most part before the Civil War, but but kind of going from that to how we get to this point where. You know, now so many Americans and there's there's almost been this kind of like until very recently bipartisan consensus around the fact that what education should do is effectively only help people get jobs. And it's the primary way to to to, you know, find economic opportunity. And the reason that's important is not necessarily just about education, although that is important. And as an educator, I, I know that's important, but it, it's it's actually about how it's degraded our politics. Right. Because 
What politicians yeah. have done, and I chart this in the book, from about the 1960s on, both Democrats and Republicans have told Americans that the only thing you need is to get the right education in order for you to be economically successful, right? And what that's done is it's degraded these big conversations that we used to have in this country about things like, um, you know, uh, expanding labor rights and expanding uh, everyday Americans' right to have a good job and, and right to have health care, right? All these things. Instead, telling people that there's a limited number of those things and you have to compete for it in this, like, fake educational meritocracy. So there's obviously a lot of themes in the movie we're going to talk about there and one of the reasons I'm interested in it. But but that's the book. And, and um, you know, I, I think as I've as I've gotten it out there and people have heard about the argument, I'm just getting so much good feedback because people intuitively realize this in this country, that 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 what they've been told about the education system and how we, you know, get good jobs and economic security, that that it's been it's been wrong for so long. That is so important and fascinating to me. I know Rivka and I talk about this exact topic. We're probably like a a, a much more uh, dumbed down version of it. Uh, <laughs> just the fact that, you know, we, we completed a public high school, or at least in my case, a public high school education in this country coming out of it, didn't have any clue how to do my taxes, didn't have any clue how a mortgage worked or like, you know, things that actually things that people are going to need to know in order to be like a functioning member of society. That, but that doesn't really sound exactly like what your book is covering. Or is that kind of it? Or is it more about like a more holistic view of education? I, I'd say a little bit more than that. I mean, maybe you didn't come out of school being able to do those things. But did you come out of high school or college knowing how to you know, in a meaning, really meaningful way beyond just like pulling a lever in the voting booth, participate in our in our political system. That's mm. what our education system should be doing, right? Um, and it should be teaching all of our students, as my program does at UW-Green Bay, Democracy and Justice Studies, teaching our students to organize for, to, to get the kind of world that they deserve and that we all deserve. That's beautiful. And I teach across like from private schools to public schools. I teach theater in different capacities. And I think I've gotten a chance in these past few years to see all like such different range of education systems. And there are schools that are doing that. And you see the advantage that these kids are leaving with. And it's pretty devastating when you recognize like what an advantage you can have so early on. Speaking to exactly what you're saying, like the social emotional education of how do you work together to build collective, to build your social emotional capacity for happiness, which is the most important right. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I see it immediately and directly, the consequences of not gaining that. I think also what you were speaking to, John, that I know Frank and I have conversations on is that that major shift that has happened where you feel like, oh, that lie. And I think especially for the millennial generation where you're like, it feels like having walked off a cliff into, you know, I see like that Looney Tunes image of like walking off a cliff where you're just like walking along and then you're falling and you're like, wait the fuck, hold the fuck on. And you're still pay like it's like you're still paying to fall, yeah. you know, is sort of yep. what this generation is experiencing. And then I have my conversations with, you know, my niece or Gen Z who are just very confused as to why the fuck they're being asked what they want to do when they can see clearly that like there might not be a future or a climate it's so i just yeah i'm really excited to read your book it sounds like you're speaking to all of this yeah and 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 young people today the the students that i encounter and, and it's changed just in i've been at in wisconsin for 10 years it's changed even in the 10 years that i've been here 
there is a deep sense of uh, of possibilities, possibilities that would have been considered radical or or um, you know not not feasible you know ten or twenty years ago. I don't talk to any young person that doesn't support the idea of like universal healthcare or a tuition free future for for colleges and universities, right? Because sure. they know that this that this version of a of a meritocracy they've been told that like work hard, get the right education, and things are going to be great for you. That's not working. I mean, young people in this country, it's 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 bad everywhere. It's bad in Green Bay. They can't afford rent. They can't buy a house. And it's not because they're not working hard enough. It's because the millionaires and billionaires in this country only care about their own profits, and they've made it impossible for young people to do that. So, you know, that, that that's kind of where I ended in the book is like really with this sense of there's going to be a lot of exciting po- political possibilities in the next few years because the system that we've been all living in has shown itself to be morally and literally bankrupt. And, mm. and so I'm just, I'm like so excited about the future, honestly. That's really encouraging to hear that. Yeah. That, that, that that's the consensus <laughs> you're getting from younger people. I'd say, you know, like I, I don't envy as a millennial, I don't uh, super envy Gen Z since they, you know, just have to be on this planet a little bit longer than me. Uh, but I will say the one edge that they do have is that they were raised in a world where there were no, false preconceived notions as to what world that they lived in. You know, I I, I know as a millennial, we very much were raised in, you know, the 90s. Our parents were boomers and they were like, everything's just going to keep getting better for you guys. And then, you know, we all graduated college and we were like, wait, what? Like Rivka saying, there's there's no jobs. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's no jobs. In fact, it's a recession and we're in another war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the lies we were raised with, should we get into this film? John, I was so excited that you... uh, chose this movie for us to watch i will uh i will disclose this is one of my favorite movies of all time i have a tattoo on my body in reference to this movie um, it is yeah yeah are we gonna get you're gonna it have to wait you're gonna find out at the end um but let's first I'll introduce the movie we're talking about back to the future today uh directed by robert zemeckis written by zemeckis and bob gale starring of course michael j fox christopher lloyd leah thompson and crispin glover this movie was made for $19 million and grossed $381 million worldwide. This was a massive, massive <laughs> film. And a brief synopsis, if you haven't seen this movie in a while. In 1985, Marty McFly, a teenager, accidentally travels back in time to 1955 using a time-traveling DeLorean car invented by his eccentric scientist friend, Dr. Emmett Doc Brown. Uh, that's Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, respectively. While in the past, Marty inadvertently interferes with his parents' first meeting, putting his own existence in jeopardy. He must then ensure that his parents fall in love and set the course of events back on track, all while trying to find a way back to the future with the help of a younger Doc Brown. Some historical context for the year this film came out, 1985. Um, one year after Ghostbusters, which we covered on this podcast, Ronald Reagan is the president of the United States, having won his re-election the year prior in historic landslide. Mikhail Gorbachev is named the new leader of the Soviet Union. On January 3rd, Mitch McConnell began serving his first term as senator of Kentucky. Oh, Such a bummer. <laughs> so long. Woof. For the first time since 1914, the U.S. owed more money to foreigners than it was owed. New York Mm. became the first state to require that all front seat auto occupants wear seatbelts or face a $50 fine. 
Blockbuster, Quicken Loans, Papa John's Pizza, Penn Station, and Samuel Ad- Adams were all founded this year. Michael Jordan is named as the NBA's Rookie of the Year. And the average monthly rent in the U.S. was $375. The average movie ticket cost $2.75. And, and that was after a decade of high inflation, too. So, John, the first thing we start the conversation with is we ask our guest, why did you choose this movie to talk about on this podcast? Yeah, that's that's such a fun question. Um, you know, I, I think the main reason is because I was born in, in 1978. And so I was seven years old when this movie came out. And I can remember I had an uncle back in the 1980s. This was, of course, before you could, you know, go on Netflix and, and stream any movie you wanted uh, or go on Amazon Prime and order any movie that you wanted, like, immediately. But what did people do? How did they see the movies? Exactly, right? <laughs> so so my uncle, he had videotapes of all these movies. He would he would rent them and he would, rec- and he would actually, like, play them and record them, right? So he had, yes. we had all of our own copies of them, right? Did he Remember, do like the double, did he do like the double VCR thing where he would like play in one and record in the other? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I can remember, you know, stay, you know, staying with, he lived with my grandparents. I can remember staying with him over the summer and he, they had this fabulous movie collection and I probably watched Back to the Future like 20 times one summer. I was just so fascinated by the idea of time travel and, you know, just continue to be fascinated by this, this series. I, I can remember uh, seeing Back to the Future 3 in the theater. It was, I was probably, wouldn't that come out, 1990 or something like that? So I was probably like 11 or 12. I have a very vivid memory of watching that with one of my friends. And it's, this has been a movie that stuck with me. And I've always been fascinated by the themes that have, have come up in this, in this film. And even more so after the book that I wrote, right? Which is that, you know, in the 1980s, you've got this incredible film uh, whose argument, right, it helps us understand so much politically, I think, about this country because, you know, Marty, Mc, we'll get into, I know the particulars of the movie, but, but Marty and his family, right, they're downwardly mobile, they're struggling economically, they're losers. And the argument of the movie isn't, hey, go out and organize your friends, and, 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 you know, and, and in school or, or, you know, organize the people at work and make your lives better. It's literally go back in time and make your parents better and, and change your future <laughs> that way by helping them succeed in the meritocracy. And we'll get into more of that stuff. But like, mm-hmm. I'm just so fascinated by this movie for what it says mm-hmm. about the political possibilities in this country. It's, it's an utterly fascinating movie. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to get into your take because that's that wasn't I mean, I got so much on this rewatch, too, and that's not where I was going at all. So I can't wait to hear more. Um, I was also a big fan of this movie, which is funny because I feel like, Frank, a lot of the movies that you loved as a child and I we've often had like differences there. But this one I was. Yeah, I was all about Back to the Future. I'm surprised. I was surprised. I didn't know ever when it came out that I was surprised to find out the first one came out before I was born because I just assumed it was I assumed it was like a film of my generation of my time. I guess it was sort of like an oldie at that point um, when I was watching them. I think my biggest takeaway rewatching was just like I just got this vision of all the like um Silicon Valley, you know, your Elon Musk, your Martin Scarelli, Elizabeth Holmes. I'm like, they too were watching this movie, being primed and ready for their like <laughs> Silicon Valley Ooh. exceptionalism. And that like it, it was just so there. Also the Stockton Rush. I mean, Doc could be Stockton Rush. This could be Ocean Gate. Like Doc's time machine really <laughs> 
when you really get into it, he, Doc's really concerned about, I mean, it's a DeLorean. Doc really wants it to look cool. Not, not, not concerned at all about the fact that, you know, he's stealing plutonium, potentially putting the human race, you know, under risk. It's like what's really important here in the message is that his idea and who he is as an individual scientist is more important and will save the day and therefore all risks should be taken even to the point that at the end of the movie that mcfly says what about all like the talk about screwing up future events in the space-time continuum and after all that doc decides that he breaks his own rule for personal gain it's like literally says well i figured what the hell and i just was like wow this <laughs> <laughs> makes so much sense that is that could be the the like well what the hell could be just like the catchphrase for all of these people that's the same kind of uh mindset that makes you take twitter and turn it into something weird like x yeah isn't it exactly yeah yeah this is definitely <laughs> upon, upon this rewatch and i do still i love this movie so much it's just so much fun it's so entertaining i rewatched mm. it again this week i've seen I, I like you john i've seen this i don't know 20, 30, 40 times, and it still makes me giggle. Some of the, the lines, some of the jokes, they're like Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd are just bouncing off the walls in this movie, and they're having it's just such a fun time. Mm -hmm. um, but watching it for this podcast, I was like, oh, this is this is kind of like the like the materialists time travel movie. And I don't mean materialist in like the Marxist sense. I mean like Marty and Doc are both both very materialistic, which is kind of speaking to I think what both of you are saying, which is like the only solution for Marty and his story arc is, like you said, John, for him to make his parents better people and to make them richer in the future, to give him and his siblings all of the materialistic advantages that he considers to be important. And that, like, we we as the audience are left to, to, to think as well. It's like, well, he got the big truck at the end. His brother got a better job as a working at McDonald's. His sister is... I guess dating people. So like by those metrics, they're, they're now successful and they get to be happy. And then similarly for, for doc, like you're right. He's so like that. That was what stuck out for me is just how reckless he is in this movie for like a scientist, someone who's like supposedly the, the serious voice of science in this movie. Very, very, very reckless man. Uh, you know, just like stealing plutonium from terrorists, sending his dog as the first test subject. I mean, I think you could have, a lot of different organic compounds he could have tried on that first test that wasn't his dog. That's definitely an institutional, that's definitely an institutional review board violation there for sure. I, I imagine this is why he got thrown out of the university system. That's true. Yo, but how many kids went ahead and like put their dogs on skateboards after this film? I mean, I, I have, I follow TikTok accounts of dogs on skateboards. So it's, it's still sure, a very sure. popular I, I guess trend. I don't mean the dogs that can ride those. Sure. Skateboards are just doing just, wild things like we did do like i would do you would watch these movies and then do wild things and mimic the fact that they just were they're like my idea is great i'm gonna do crazy things in pursuit of it i mean the our first introduction to marty is he's just like abusing all of doc's uh hardware just without mm. <laughs> without any care he's just like oh i'm just gonna plug in my guitar and turn everything up to 11 and just absolutely destroy what i have to assume is tens of thousands of dollars of hardware <laughs> so he's got no concern for anyone else like for someone who's clearly so materialistically uh focused he has no concern for other people's possessions but i want to dig into because i think we're in, like in this same space but i want to dig this feels this felt like a very reagan era 
movie, like a very 1980s movie. Like you mentioned, John, like they're down, downwardly mobile. The, the, the modern Hill Valley where, you know, Marty lives is, you know, dilapidated. Uh, it's the, the, the town has not been taken care of. It kind of feels like it's echoing a lot of the like the Reagan era '80s stuff of like you know our cities are overrun with crime and like falling apart. We've got to get back to traditional values. Um, and then when we flash back to 1950s Hill Valley, it is pristine. It is like a perfect uh, small town America, like you know the nuclear family ad. So yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, like. When you see, because I think you mentioned this when we were first talking about doing this movie, like how 1950s idealism really plays into the themes of this movie. Yeah, there, there, there's there's so many things I could say here. I mean, because I, I read up on this quite a bit, as I'm sure you both did, too. Um, and, you know, the, the first thing is, obviously, there's the um, and I have to I have to credit my friend Peter Meyerson uh, for for we were kind of talking about this for helping me understand this, too. First of all, there's the entire meta narrative. I hate to use that word, but I don't know what else to say uh, about uh, using Michael J. Fox. Right. And apparently uh, Eric Stoltz was originally uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you read this was originally cast. Yes. Um, and they shot and some they of the actually, movie with Stoltz. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. And and so um, uh, Michael J. Fox is is chosen and he's Alex P. Keaton, right? I mean, like for folks who remember family ties, his, his claim to fame was playing this character, this young conservative in a family of these like hippies. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't remember that show super well, but like anybody watching that who wasn't seven years old, I was seven at the time. I didn't get that. But anybody else watching that who was any amount older would have understood the, the kind of who this 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 kid was, the conservative ties that he had. Right. So that's number one. Number two, um, apparently uh, I was reading uh, Mark Weinberg, who worked in the Reagan administration, Peace and Politico from 2018, who talked about how much Reagan actually loved this movie. They watched it at the at, at Camp David. Um, he he got sense. a kick out of the. Yeah, he got a kick out of the fact that. Uh, obviously Reagan's mentioned in one of those early scenes, right in the, in, uh, I think the movie is the cattle queen of Montana and that, and that Reagan had this kind of like uh, belief in destiny and that, and that like really spoke to him in this, in this movie that like, mm. you know, um, uh, time travel had gone and made things right that were supposed to happen. And then the other piece of this that we have to get into is the racial politics of all the stuff you just talked about, right. In terms of, 1950s being this pristine time when everything was safe and the 1980s being in Hill Valley, this time of degradation and there's a black mayor. Right. Um, and yeah. and I, I got there's a there's a great video that I watched that people need to check out if they're interested in this more. Uh, uh, it's called Yo Black Pop Culture with Craze Creighton talking about this. I just wanted to give this kind of shout out. But we'll link the to it in the he, description of the podcast. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. One of the things that he noticed, and I don't know if y'all noticed this, but this is amazing. In the 1950s, the clock tower is connected. It's, it's the courthouse, right? Which is this symbol of this video I was watching pointing this out, mm-hmm. that it's the symbol of justice and everything. It's the Department of Social Services in the 1980s, right? And so there's this, oh. th- so there's this like sense that like, you know, black political power led by, you know, this, this mayor Goldie, um, Wilson, who, by the way, if you notice, he, he, he trumpets the exact same policy platform as the white mayor in the 1950s. Progress is his middle name, right? Uh, that that um, it's become this like 
degraded place where, you know, welfare politics are like, you know, siphoning off the resources of, you know, the citizens of, of Hill Valley because of black political rule. And this is the, now this is stuff I'm adding to this kind of conversation from my own research on the 1970s from my, my first book, actually. There's a wave of black mayors in the 1970s in a lot of American cities, right? People like Kenneth Gibson in Newark, Coleman Young in Detroit, uh, Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. And they become mayors in these cities right when these cities start to undergo fiscal crises because all the wealth is being taken out of the cities and, and taken to the suburbs. And you've got deindustrialization happening where corporations are saying, like, we can, we can get cheaper labor elsewhere. And these cities all have fiscal crises. And it's the exact moment that black mayors take control that all of a sudden they start facing all of these, like, you know, these, these sort of uh, significant uh, problems that are that are seen as degrading the cities, and those two things are equated with each other. That mm. is a huge part of the portrait of this version of the 1980s with this black mayor, and it is so important for us to recognize that. That mm. is such a good point. And can I ask you, in your research, did the did the rise of like black elected officials in the 70s did that coincide with sort of the white flight that had happened in the preceding decades? Was it just more? Was it like the demographics of these cities were changing and Politic, like the politics of the 60s were getting more progressive, so it, it created more space for black elected officials. Like, what would you attribute that specific uh, dynamic change to? Yeah, it's it's both things. So it's so yes, it's in the 60s. It's the growth of black political power. So like in Newark, for example, and I write about this in my first book, the Kenneth Gibson is elected by, you know, this this uh, uh, group of civil rights activists that's led by I don't know if y'all know this person, but this uh, this poet named Amiri Baraka. Who yep. uh, yeah. okay has had some movie roles, most famously in in Bullworth, actually. But um, you know these they're elected by civil rights activists, and right, so it's this it's this great moment. But it corresponds with these political economic changes that are happening in the country, right? Where uh, starting in the really starting in the '60s, you know, you've got greater demands for social services, in part led by welfare rights activists. Uh, but again, you also have uh, corporations moving from cities like New York City, the garment industry practically goes under in the 1960s and 70s in New York because they're because they're like our labor costs are too high. Uh, we've got to we've got to, um, you know, find cheaper costs of labor. And then you add to that the the um, inflation that happens in the decade and economic stagnation. Economists literally thought those two things couldn't happen at the same time. Right. Uh, mm. Economic decline and, and inflation. And so that's all layered onto this. And um, municipal budgets start to come under fire because tax receipts are going down. And a lot of white people are moving to the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. Because taxes are lower there. It's seen as, you know, it's, it's seen as, you know, cleaner and, and better government. And so it does create this kind of uh, perpetual motion in a lot of American cities where right at the time you start to have, you know, b black politicians taking more ownership over a lot of these cities. And they are and many of these cities are becoming more African-American they're also facing these these tremendous headwinds that make it seem like somehow it's like it's like black uh, you know politics are somehow responsible for these things that are really almost all outside of the control of of mayor these mayors that I've been talking about. So it's a it's a fascinating period, and Reagan had so much political gain from that, right? I mean, think about how he you know uh, talked about these you know fictitious ideas about welfare queens and all these mm -hmm. things. It, it's it's all targeted at at, at you know the, the big racial politics and, and other kind of political economic changes that were happening from like the late 60s until the early 80s. Wow, that's all so fascinating. I mean, 
the stuff that I feel like jumped out immediately for me in terms of the racial conversation in this film was just my awareness that I never felt every time it would go, even as a child watching back in time in this time machine, I was like, this does not feel quite like a safe place. And everything in in the world is filled with all of these indicators of white supremacy culture. What these films teach us is like the subtext or just the text, the way it's used. You know, he talks about his mom as hot in this movie is thin. So anytime like hot is replaced because McFly is attracted to his mom, I'm never not grossed out by the Oedipal complex of it all. But he'll always replace like hot is thin. And at the end, she's like, mom, you're th- you're thin. Additionally, it's McFly who gives the mayor the idea to become mayor. That's right. So That's he, right. I mean, he is this young white man who comes through and just sort of like, not only does he give the the black mayor the idea that you will be mayor in the future, he um, actually is the reason that um, Chuck Berry... <laughs> is Chuck Berry like (laughs) so at the end um he's playing one of the musicians can't play so he has to play and it's really important he plays at the school dance so that his parents can have their first kiss and he can be born and during that he's like you know he's playing songs because he's from the future uh that they haven't heard before so he's playing a Chuck Berry track but then the the musician's cousin's like oh I'll call my buddy Chuck this is the sound he was looking for. Like, that was just like, whoa. So, of course, Reagan loved this film. We're like, <laughs> we're just adopting all cultures, white culture. It was wild. It's wild in that, like, movies from this era, even from, like, a filmmaker like Robert Robert Zemeckis, who I imagine is, like, your boilerplate liberal Hollywood filmmaker, how much these small story points, these small themes... uh how much that they were influenced by what was happening at the time and how they incorporated things like this into like the things we're talking to into their films. I'm sure at the time, not thinking like, Oh, this doesn't have any, you know, real world ramifications, or this isn't indicative of a, like a larger societal problem, but it does like when it just like, it reinforces all of the, like, and, and, and a movie like this is could, can be very insidious because it's very, very below the surface. Like no one is, no one is overtly racist. No one is over, you know, like there's not like all of these things that we're discussing are, are not on the surface. So they're kind of just all implied. And because it comes in like this, you know, this fun, you know, action comedy sci-fi adventure, I imagine it's easier to internalize, you know, things like this, like seeing a seeing a town in the 80s and being like, wow, the 80s crime is bad. But in the 50s, crime is not bad. Wow. What what must have been the difference? Oh, there is a black mayor. Hmm, maybe that maybe that has something to do with it. I mean, I know when we covered Ghostbusters, when they were talking about writing the script, they were like, yeah, everyone was starting a business in the 80s. So we made our movie about guys who start a business. And it's, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the, their intent, it wasn't their intention to like to to parrot some sort of like pro independent business message but like that's they're just kind of like internalizing the things that are happening without a lot of conscious thought think about how powerful that is though right and 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 that's one of the reasons i love this podcast and the work y'all are doing is like you know uh you think about how people are informed by racial politics right or how they determine racial politics right i mean maybe it's by listening to a politician talk about it Maybe it's by reading newspapers. Maybe, as academics probably like to believe, it's it's reading academic stuff, but almost no one's reading academic stuff, so that's not actually happening. 
But this is a touchstone. This is a cultural touchstone, this movie, that so many people watched. And it, and it, because it's all subtextual, you know, it, th- this completely makes, just, just reinforces, makes real a lot of the things that were happening without any challenge, right? A lot of the kind of assumptions that were already there and makes it all the more difficult for anybody trying to organize against it to do anything about it, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just this this just seems so natural. It's such a fun movie. It's so enjoyable. And yet think about the work that it's doing. And and it and it probably has a had a bigger impact than a lot of other conversations about racial politics that were happening in the nineteen eighties. I, I didn't want to forget this because and this this is utterly trivial, but I think it's it's fascinating. So remember the scene you were talking about, about Marty has to go and play the guitar to keep his, you know, to make sure his parents actually get together. All right. And the, and you've got the picture where all of the images of the uh, individual, you know, siblings are starting to disappear. Why doesn't the photo itself disappear? Right. Who's (laughs) taking that photo if none of the kids exist? Sure. I'll, I mean, if we want to get into like, if we want to have like the time travel logic conversation, we could get it. And I'm sure people have, have done it like tirelessly. But yeah, this movie has, if you're talking to like a hard sci-fi fan, this movie's time travel logic does not make any sense whatsoever. But it doesn't need to because Silicon Valley exceptionalism again. But you know, that's such a great point though, because think about the flux capacitor. Right. Which is utterly ridiculous. Right. One thing that and I just I just thought of this. I didn't even make the connection until just now. And and you were saying this, Rivka, Star Wars in the 1980s. Right. This this space laser thing that that Reagan was into. Think about that. Right. Like this just utterly bizarre. Like, well, yeah, like science, science will figure this out. Right. I mean, the the Star Wars thing was never going to happen. But Reagan had this like bizarre, almost like mystical faith in it in the same way that you're talking with this like flux capacitor and time travel. Which is a vagina, right? The flux. Clearly, yes. Yes, like, those, are, clearly, those are ovaries. Like, yeah, yeah, those are ovaries. You're like, that I'm down with. That yeah. metaphor I get. It all makes sense. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, just along the lines of the conversation we're having around race, I do think we have to address just like the Libyans, as they point, as they call them, just the Libyans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, which, I mean, I guess we. this movie was obviously pre-9-11, but it was just setting us up for being of that generation. You're like, we were just ready to go. You know, all films like this, we were just like ready to go to be like terrorist. I don't need to know more. I need one word to name bad guy. And and again, that sub the power of that subtext, the power of that already being in our communal imagination of what it means to be American and what it means to um, have someone attack that. We were just we were just all brainwashed and ready for that narrative i mean it's just it's such a common trope of from movies from that time all the way through the fucking mid 2010s uh like that that only has recently subsided and not completely i mean but it makes sense you know this was uh the nearing the end of the cold war russia was not as much of the villain like the villain of the movie anymore so a lot of America's focus on who the next bads were, were was already like everyone was looking towards the Middle East. And we see shit like this throughout so so much film and television of this era, and especially in the post-9-11 world, was just like, we're just going to paint a broad brush on, you know, insert XYZ name terrorist, and they're going to be the bad guy. I mean, like, I think about shows like 24 like how much damage that must have done to 
like Islamic communities in this country. I think about shows like Homeland, which came out in like the 2010s, which was doing basically the same thing. Like this is, we've been doing this for a long time and we only kind of stopped doing it recently. So I think that's very important to point out because people get so much of their subconscious messaging, so much of their ideology through film and television. I mean, John, you wrote a whole book about how education is, you know, in this country is letting a lot of people down. I think a lot of people get their education through media, Mm. through, I mean, I know I did. I've talked about it on this show. Like I gleaned a lot of my early political concepts and like political development from movies and TV. I guess I'm lucky that I watched more progressive stuff, but like, yeah, this can have a very lasting impact. Well, and it's, and it's fascinating. Absolutely. And, And it's fascinating how the Libyans are depicted. I mean, they're, they're depicted as just cartoonishly stupid, right? I mean, like they they're gonna they're gonna be given right. What what does Doc Brown say? Like I gave them a bunch of, I took the plutonium and, gave, and gave, gave them a bunch, a bunch of pinball sh- shoddy bond casing filled with pin, <laughs> use pinball machine parts. Right, and they're too and and they're too stupid to realize it. And apparently they're the they're the worst shot in the world because they can't hit anybody when they're shooting at them, and then they run into the one hour phone booth. I mean, it's just like. You know, obviously they're seen as a danger, but it's it's very generic, and they're just seen as like, you know, cartoonishly silly, right? And and mm-hmm. and that that that's like a gag in the in in that part of the movie. I want to go back real fast to this uh, idea about 1950s idealism because I think like this is such a huge theme in this movie, and I don't remember where I read it, but basically we you know throughout uh, like the American myth. What what we consider the 1950s is is a very uh, idealized and commercialized version of what the 1950s actually were in the way that it's depicted in film and television, in the way that sort of like all of the, the, the media and especially the advertising of that era has sort of permeated through the decades. Um, but we look back on the 1950s like it was like this idealistic perfect time. And, you know, that idea has come under rightfully under, you know, has been critically interrogated recently, especially in the wake of you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement or, 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 you know, make America great again. And people being like, well, when was America great? America was great in the 50s when, you know, when like black people had no rights and, you know, women were still fighting for equality. Like that is that when America was great. So no, but the neolibs are like, like, no, it was great in the 90s. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yeah, that that was the America that we're trying to get back to. But people don't consider the fact that, like, so this is 1955 that he's in, that what, like, the Korean War had just finished two years earlier, and, you know, people were still reeling from that. So there's much more happening under the surface. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this this idealism you're talking about is very individualistic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I, I want to say is that, you know, it, that the movie gets wrong is that, you know, there is a there is a part of that narrative about the 1950s being a good time that um, is true, right? And it's and it's true because uh, 1953 was the moment in American history where you had the highest union density, uh, as a, about almost uh, 35 percent of the non labor, uh, sorry, non farm workforce were union members then, right? Mm. So one of the reasons that people do remember the 1950s this way is because this this uh, historian named Jack Metzger has a great book that talks about this. He was the son of a steel worker and also a historian. And he talks about how the 1950s was this, was this time in which because union contracts were getting better and better 
uh, wages and working conditions for working people, that there was a sense of there being new possibilities in the 50s, right? All the other stuff you're saying is true, right? That you, you've got, you know, Korea and, and ramping up of, of Cold War politics. You've got, in many cases, um, communists and, and other leftists being kind of written out of the equation entirely, right? So all that stuff's true. Um, but the labor movement in, in the 1950s, if you look at people across the board, uh, African-Americans, Latinos, their standards of living were going up, especially for those who were in unions, right? In spite of all the inequalities that were there. So to, to me, the thing and the gender politics, right? Like that's, that's all there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sugarcoat that at all. But to the extent that the 1950s were a time of greater possibilities, the movie even gets that wrong because you hmm. think about uh, Lorraine's father, for example, right? We don't know what kind of job he has, but I, I bet he's in a union, right? And, 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 and his house... Yeah. And, and the house that George McFly's parents live in, you don't ever see his parents, but it's a very nice house. And these are, these are maybe people who got into the middle class because of unions and progressive politics coming out of the New Deal. And so to the extent that the movie uh, uh, tries to capture that, it doesn't, none of that stuff's there. It doesn't get that. It's just like, well, people worked hard and it was a simpler time. But, that, but that's not the reality of it at all, right? You know, I, I think it's 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 important to acknowledge that like there's some aspects of that depiction that that has some truth to it. It's just that the movie gets all of the explanations for that wrong. But you know, you, you think about what happens in this movie, right? Stemming from that explanation of why the '50s were actually good, right? Marty has to go back in time to make things right, and how does he do it? He he makes his parents, specifically his dad, right, more ambitious, more courageous. And, um, and, and, and one of the kind of mo moments that we see this, right, is the, is the principal whose name escapes me, but like he calls everybody a slacker, right? Mm. So the school is really important because what, what the argument there is like, if you don't do well in school, you're not going to do well in the kind of meritocracy that exists in the country, right? Mm. So when you get to the 80s, that's why Marty's, Marty's family are all losers, right? His, his, his brother works at a fast food place. His mom's a drunk. Uh, his dad, think about the class politics of this, right? His dad is like lower level white collar and this bully, right? Literally takes his work from him, right? You've got to, I've mm. got to be able to like, you know, re retype this because if, if people are going to see that I stole mm. your work, right? Yeah. Think McFly, think. Right. But how, do, but how does Marty actually go and put things right? He, again, he gets his dad to like uh, buck up and, and, and compete in this meritocracy and, He's successful because what does he do? He writes a book, right? I mean, he does something that shows how educated and, and smart he is, right? And then all of a sudden, his you know brother is Marty. You know, I always wear a suit to the office, right? In the in the you know second mm -hmm. 1985, right? And and it's hard for me not to even then extend this connection. And I know we talked about this in terms of which movie to do to Back to the Future Two, where Biff literally becomes this Trump character. He upends the entire meritocracy. Yeah. Because he goes back in time and cheats, right? He cheats. He has the almanac. He cheats. He takes the easy way out. And then he becomes this Trump character. Who did Trump in 2016 and beyond, like, who did he really kind of see as his nemesis or who hated him the most? It's professional class people who believed in this kind of meritocracy. You can mm. extend this kind of all the way through into Back to the Future 2. I'm so fascinated by this. Oh, wow. We'll definitely have you back on to do Back to the Future 2 because this is, I'm yeah. learning a lot. I'm really glad you brought up that part about the way that Marty changed his father was to be 
a better individual, to be like the kind of individual that we, we quote unquote, should be aspiring to be, which is all the things that you said, courageous, tough. It's, it's couched in this sweet tale of this, this shy, you know, uh, cowardly guy finally standing up for himself and, you know, beating the bully. And, and not only that, but like stopping a sexual assault. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you talk about the book, like I read it as, oh, well, he's, he's indulging his creative side. He's being who he wants to be. And the Biff character, think about Biff, right? This guy sexually assaulted his, his future wife. He hires him to wax his car now, right? And, 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 it, and it completely upends the class politics of the original 1985. Now the blue collar dude is in his place, right? He's now serving the professional mm-hmm. class person who's, who's successful. He's been subordinated, right? This, the, the, the class politics of this movie are so messed up. No, I was just going to say this makes me think um, just about where we started in the conversation about your book and what we learn about schooling from a very early age and how there's this opportunity to be teaching different um, social emotional ways of being, ways of being with each other. And I'm just like, wow, I don't know if I learned what the social hierarchy of school was before. Like, I'm pretty sure I learned it from movies and then you go into school and I know that I literally go into school thinking I'm going to mimic these films. I mean, or TV shows. Like, I have incidents of literally teaching kids to behave like episodes from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> because I'm like, that's how it works. You know, you're trying to figure it out. But um, it's, it is fascinating, especially when you're like the dynamics going in. You have all of these kids learning it, going and mimicking it. And it becomes a chicken or egg situation where you're like, I, I don't know at this point between media and schooling. And, but it's all about power. It's like what you're saying. It's just power dynamics. And how do I succeed in a system inside of school where I can survive you know, someone has to be my fucking bitch so that I can survive. And maybe I'll have these tiny social constructs. But um, yeah, that kind of blew, that's really disturbing. And don't ever question the system. Just figure out how you're going to be the person who comes out on top in that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's you just want to be the winner and not the loser. For women, it's be thin and don't be, you know, and actually this this movie was interesting because I thought. Um, with the mother had a really interesting journey between herself as a, who she becomes as a mother and her ideas about like what she tells her daughter, don't drink, you don't want to be seen with a boy, don't be a slut, and then her younger self and just, yeah, that virgin whore dichotomy about what that gains you to power and access. Yeah, what are you, I know, Frank, you were going to touch on this. Uh, yeah, I wanted to hit talk about this before we go to the awards because that was the thing that I, in this rewatch, really stuck out to me that I hadn't fully conceived before was how unfortunate of a of an arc Lorraine gets in this movie because when we're introduced to her in the original 1985 as Marty's mother she's like you're saying she's she's very judgmental she's talking down on Marty's girlfriend she's slut shaming she we're led to believe that she doesn't approve of any kind of you know premarital sex and then when we meet her as her teenage self in the 50s she is she's very uh you know, sexually adventurous and, you know, want, and like clearly is going after what she wants. But the movie is painting that in a way where it's like, oh, she's actually slutty. It's kind of felt like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind totally. of portrayal of female sexuality in this movie where it was like, you can either be like a judgy prude or you could be like a dirty slut. And there's no in-between space where you could just be like a woman who 
is confident in their sexuality. So like, and, and it felt like the movie was really didn't give you that in between. The movie was really like the, she's one of these two extremes. And then I guess I guess the end is is her you know just feeling a little bit. She more... She wins at the end because she's hot. I mean thin. <laughs> like that was the movie. right. And she's and she and she's still sexualized. Right. Remember the remember the scene where they come back from playing squash or whatever the fuck it is that people yeah. in that, you know, do, do a, you know, and, and, and George McFly, you know, actually kind of smacks her on the butt, mm-hmm. you know, like, right, so, she, so right. she's still like, right. And, and even the, the Freudian elements to this, right. Think about that, that, uh, 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 version of, of Lorraine that you're talking about the uninhibited one, you know, if you're taking the Freudian analysis of this, right. Like she's, not, still not a real person. She's there simply to serve as the, you know, the, the, the mother figure that Marty has to like, you know, he, he, he has to figure out this like Oedipal complex to like yeah. get through. Right. The, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so she's not, there's never any serious exploration of her as a real character. Right. Which is just, you know, pretty much par for the course of, of most Which films is why, at this time. Yeah, know? the flux capacitor yeah. being a vagina is important because in this analogy, it's yep. like you're yep. either in or you're out. You know, like, are you giving birth <laughs> or you like, which way is the, you know, baby coming out, penis going in. Of course, there's like all the dimensions of creation and, you know, there's but the film does just that dichotomy. I, there is a version where there could be like such a powerful like it is very emotional to think that you could go back and have this interaction with your mother at this young age. And there is like this, there's so much potential, which was really sad for this being actually very healing for a young man to go. Who's like at the peak of like, he's dating this woman. He's about to take her out to whatever to drive and be interrupted and go back and have going up to the lake. Yeah. To have this moment and learn about what, learn about womanhood through the lens of his mother and there's a there's an alternative film there that could be very healing but instead it's and and what you learn through this is because this is such a movie about the young male experience the toxicity of this patriarchy on the young male like that you see that she even Lorraine even says you know I don't want to she doesn't want to date date George because she and she's she wants to date McFly her son um, because he's what a real man is. And there's just, you keep mm. throwing down, like, a real man is someone who pushes, who either pushes a woman around or protects or pushes the man who wants to push the woman around. Like, it is so disturbing. And people might say it's, but this is the narrative that all of these young men are getting. And this is also the narrative that, yep. again, women are going into their, cl- you know, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is how we play these power dynamics. So it's lots of... um toxicity it's sad but there is yeah i want to see that other version of that movie yeah the the gender politics of this movie may be worse than the class politics yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> very much and and people might think we're making a mountain out of a molehill but like as we mentioned up top this was this movie was a massive hit this is a ma- this movie is a worldwide phenomenon there, i don't think there's anyone on planet earth who has not seen back to the future or at least a few scenes from it so you know, when we talk about the themes of these movies and how they are extrapolated and interpreted by people, we're talking about stuff like this. This is like massive, mass culture. So it has the impact, you know, whether intentional or otherwise. All right. Did either of you have anything else you wanted to hit before we go to the awards? The DeLorean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Did, okay. Do, you, do you all know the backstory on the DeLorean? Like the actual car and... Yeah. A little bit. Not really. I know that it was like an 80s flash in the pan 
some hot new design, you know, is trying to be that like that like the futurist's version of what a cool new car looks like, but that's it. Right. So I looked at I looked this up and this totally this has to fit into a podcast on capitalism in some way because this was fascinating. The DeLorean was formed by or was the company was created by an American automobile manufacturer named John DeLorean, right? He was an executive for um I don't know some other company. And so this was the only model they ever created. It was manufactured in Ireland, right? Because they got some like uh, deal on, uh, you know, from being able to like not have to pay as much in taxes and it wasn't doing very well. And so the, the dude who, the executive who, um, you know, created this, John DeLorean, he was arrested in October of 1982, trying to smuggle $24 million worth of cocaine into the United States. And he was doing it to try and keep the company afloat. He was caught up in a sting operation. Uh, which he was initially acquitted of, but only because he was entrapped. Uh, it was sort of how wow. the court case uh, came out. So Zemeckis, right, would have known all of this stuff when he decided to put, to use the DeLorean. And, and from the stuff I read, they basically said, we use this because it was like a futuristic kind of car and that's why he wanted to use it. But like for anybody watching this in 1985, they would have known all this stuff because it would have been all over the news. I grew up, I grew up not even knowing what a DeLorean was. But for people who were, you know, adults or close to it at that time, all of this baggage would have been in there, too. And I don't know if that would have been funny or or made the, you know, kind of conversation about capitalism more kind of ingrained. But I just I thought that was really interesting and something that is worth talking about. No, but that makes sense, because from my understanding, like the DeLorean was mostly a punchline in the 80s. I think people it's from from what I have gleaned over the years, it seems like people right as soon as it was introduced people were like this thing is ridiculous looking this is the ugliest yeah, so yeah. like when doc says like you know i thought if i d- designed a time machine I might as well do it with some style i always i always interpreted that as like a joke on its face like no one thought yeah. the delorean was stylish all right john well uh i could honestly keep talking to you about this movie all day and we'll, we'll definitely have you back to do part two but we have to move to the awards so yes. we give out uh, three awards every episode uh for this movie the first one is called a point with a view this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie oh boy uh jesus yeah not a ton to choose from in this one okay okay no i got it i got it actually Mm -hmm. the 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 african-american musicians who are playing at the dance oh right yeah yeah they actually weirdly they they have the best politics why because they actually, you know, uh, uh, get Marty out of the trunk. They help him, mm-hmm. and you know, they give him the chance to actually play in the band to to keep the concert going. Right? They're they're pretty much the only uh, you know characters in the in the film that you know do anything that's not self serving. That's Absolutely. a really good one. I give it to the band as well. Potentially, someone. What's, what's the What's the name of the band? The Starlighters. Potentially based on the name. backstory that you gave us, John, for the family, I, I, I may say um, the grandparents, because now I have mm. this idea that oh, they have union jobs and they're, you know, and they seem like a pretty happy, delightful family. And, yeah. Oh, and you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I know we're not supposed to, we're just supposed to be doing the awards. Uh, Georgia McFly is a peeping Tom. Jesus. Oh, that's yeah. Awful. yeah. Was that not ever resolved? And that's just like a funny thing. Like, oh, he's out there, you know, peeping on the woman that he eventually marries. And that's like, just that's just a joke. That's just a throwaway thing. Ew. Yeah. I don't, 
I don't know why yeah. in my head filled in. I was like, they resolved that somewhere. And they, you're right, they didn't. I made a note of it. I was like, that's got to be like, they'll tell us that he was looking at al for aliens or something. No, he was really just peeping. Mm -hmm. Boys will be boys. Um, all right, our next award is called uh, Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. We got we got some some better contenders for this one. Mm. I think it's probably got to be Biff Tannen. I mean, he's a bully. He commits sexual assault. I like. I don't think there's anyone worse in the movie. He's he's Trump as a young man. I'm gonna say Doc. I, Doc was not Ooh. doing it for me. And you know, Christopher Lloyd's so amazing. Like as a kid, that was my just everything. As an actor, so amazing. I didn't see it. Doc is what? What is Doc bringing to the table other than potential like end of the world catastrophe? Does Doc ever yeah. really even tell us why? Beyond like the cool, like beyond I am a scientist and I must. Do we know why this is so important? I no. We we he we never get any sense of his motivation or his arc at all. Uh, <laughs> Actually, no, pretty much none of these characters, other than like maybe George McFly, have an arc in this movie. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, Doc has one line where he said he squandered his family fortune to to realize the the time machine. So maybe he's trying to make it back, or maybe I'm he's helping. just trying to make his name in the scientific community. But it doesn't seem to be altruistic. That's for sure. No, no, I think Rivka's right about this. I mean, this is this is the exemplar of the scientist who's like, we're doing this because we can do it, right? It's like sure. the it's like the entire conversation now about AI where it's just like, hey, like maybe this is gonna fuck everything up, but no, we're just gonna do it because we can do it. We have the technology, right? From 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 nuclear weapons, right? And there's the nuclear tie in too with the plutonium, from creating the nuclear weapons you know, during the nineteen forties all the way through AI, right? So many scientists. I, I wasn't thinking a lot about this angle, Rivka, but this is a great angle for this film. It's real that's really insightful. There's the horror version, Christopher Nolan, yep. like, instead of Oppenheimer, it's just like, yeah. Doc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know what? You're right. Because the, the damage that Doc could have done would have far, far supersedes what, whatever Biff was up to in his, in his dumb car. Um, even, even, even Biff, you can feel bad for a little bit. Obviously, this comes from the second film, which we're going to get into. But, like, Biff has a, in terms of his class politics... He's poor, right? And oh, he, yeah, he doesn't yeah, yeah. he doesn't live with his parents, right? I mean, so there are some explanations for why he is the way that he is. Um, all right, Rivka, you won us over. And Doc it's just Brown. it is just fascinating. Nothing. This came out right after Ghostbusters, which is like they would all be hanging out. They're all, you know what I mean? They're like all hanging out. They all. Oh the yeah, same. yeah, yeah. So our next award is a star is scorned. John, this goes to the character. That's maybe a supporting character in this movie, but that this movie should actually be about. We want to see a feature on this character. I think you already answered this. The John DeLorean? Or, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's not in this movie, but I'd still want to see that Lorraine, movie. Lorraine. Lorraine. Oh, yes. Lorraine. Lorraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ima imagine how this looks from that perspective. I mean... You know, I'd never thought about it this way, but, you know, this could have been a feminist movie, right? Where mm. young man goes back in time and actually learns about his mother, right? Instead of her just being a prop for her, for his, that he needs to, like, get together with his dad. I I love that. It would be great to, like, or you could do, like, the inverted version where someone's traveling into the future. If we're doing, like, a different movie, someone's traveling into the future and meet, meeting, like, 
their daughter or something, or just any any situation where a man is confronted with like a female family member, and the female family member is like, "I am a sexual being. You have to accept that." And, <laughs> and you know, like that's like it should this shouldn't it shouldn't be that complicated. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, John. Well, again, this was such a great conversation, uh, but we we have to let you go. But before we do, the last thing we like to do with our guests is discuss. Uh, how we practice our values in our everyday lives. And that could be anything from like a a personal practice that you do, uh, an organization you work with. But yeah, so how do you practice your either anti-capitalist or your progressive or your pro-labor values in your everyday life? Uh, you know, this, this is pretty much all I do. So, so I, I, it's, it's, you know, I I don't want to sound, uh, you know, like, uh, like I'm not taking this seriously and thinking of something more interesting, but like I teach in a program called democracy and justice studies. And so with my students, it's all about getting them to understand that they deserve a better world and how to create a more democratic world and how to organize for it. Um, and then the union work that I do, I'm president of the faculty and staff union here at UW-Green Bay, and, and I've been elected to four terms as vice president for higher education in the state. And for people who don't know about Wisconsin, right, like folks probably know something about like Act 10, this law that was passed 12 years ago that took away all meaningful collective bargaining rights from public employees. Uh, and we have the most gerrymandered legislature in the nation mm. in which, um, you know, we win state, Democrats win statewide elections for governor and state Supreme Court justice and everything else, but Republicans have almost a veto-proof majority in the state assembly, right? So this has been a difficult place to live and work, um, in part because, you know, the the Republicans and the legislature in particular have gone to war on higher education, right? Um, They just cut our budget. We have a $7 billion surplus. They just cut our budget because they don't want us to have diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so... Every damn day, what I'm doing is trying to help my colleagues organize so that we can fight back against this and protect and deepen the kind of democratic uh, future that we all deserve. And so um, it's, you know, it's it's tremendously fun to do this kind of stuff. Uh, but the day to day stuff I do is it's it's a lot of it's a lot of conversations with people. It's a lot of, you know, meetings and and you know, helping people, bringing people together to kind of build for the next thing. Because in contrast to this film, right, where all of the solutions are individualistic, right? Go back in time and and make your family's life better. The way we actually make things better is by organizing and building power together against the rich in this country who actually don't want us to have any opportunities. They're the ones who are actually making our, our lives difficult, not black mayors, by the way. Mm. And, and, and that's what drives me every day. And that's what keeps me going. And I'm really proud of everything that I do every day. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing genuinely. John, where can our audience find you and your work or your book or wherever, wherever we should direct them if they'd like to learn more about you? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the book's out, it's through Cornell University Press. So you can buy it right there. Or you can, if you want to go to the bookseller that should be nationalized, you can, you can buy it there too. Um, we're call, are we calling this X now, or are we calling it Twitter? Can I just call it Twitter, at Prof Underbar Shelton? Yeah, we can just and, keep calling uh, it Twitter. I don't want to give Elon yeah, anything. okay. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. Uh, so, at Prof Underbar Shelton, and, uh, you know, you can also just send me an email. Google me. Well, John, before we go, I, I promised it up top, uh, so I'm going to show you both the tattoo that I have from this movie. Nice. It is the, uh, it's the out-of-time uh, license plate from the back of the DeLorean, tattooed on the back of my arm. <laughs> What's the story there? Why'd you get that tattoo? 
Oh, I mean, I truly, this is just one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, most, a lot of my tattoos are based on the pop culture that I love. And I just always loved that license plate. I always thought it was just like such a cool, and it's only in the movie for a, a split second when the DeLorean does its first, uh, its first voyage. But of all of the things, I thought that would be uh, the least corny, but it's probably still a little corny. Okay. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe the, maybe uh, not the clock tower. Not the clock Save tower. Save the clock tower. Yeah. I've seen a bunch of DeLorean outline tattoos and I was like, I don't need to do that. And like, I'm not, I don't want a picture of Michael J. Fox on my body. So like this, <laughs> this, this seemed to be the, the happy medium. Right on. Right on. That's fun. John, it was so great meeting you, dude. Uh, I can see why Harvey loves you and wanted you to be on the podcast. So we really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, thank, oh, thank you so much. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. Again, you can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching Michael Cimino's 1980 epic western, Heaven's Gate. Thanks, everyone. Bye.